This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, we are in a makeshift studio today. Actually, we're in my office, so there's a little bit of an echo around here because, Pastor Bruss, we've had some excitement up here at the church this morning. We sure have, and uh, it's funny. We're going to be talking about baptism today, and uh, a baptism actually took place. Yes, it did. (laughs) Not the kind we were thinking of. But gratefully, we get to work on the Pluck Chicken podcast, and, well, others get to go out there and uh, sop up all the water. From the burst pipes in the bathroom. Craziness. You know it's one of my joys to play for you some of the craziness that is being spewed in American churches, and we're not going to do that today. However, before we get going with something of substance, I just wanted to play you this. I mean, I love King David. He's one of my favorite people in all of scripture. He's the man after God's own heart. That dude messed up a lot. Now he was a man after God's own heart because when he messed up, he knew how to repent and get things right, but he still kept messing up. Like here, this is going to mess up a lot of your theology at the moment. I'm not even going to... David's a man after God's own, own heart. Here's how much he struggled with everything. When he died as an old man, they put a naked virgin in his bed to make sure he was dead. (laughs) A man after God's own heart. Now, I'm not advocating living a lifestyle that's like that. So people go, here's the only way to tell. I mean, we put a mirror up, and there's nothing wrong there, but it's really only one way to tell, because that's how much of a womanizer that he was. Now, Pastor Bruss, I double-checked the Scripture this morning. This is uh, 1 Kings, I believe, chapter 1, where it speaks about, really, the, the last few moments of David's life. But it says nothing about this, I mean, it goes into great detail about her name and her family name and that she was beautiful, but it doesn't say anything about we're testing to see if David is going to molest her. It just says that he couldn't get warm, and she provided the warmth for him in his, I mean, this is like hospice care. Right. But yet we've turned this whole thing around to make it look like, oh, uh, we'll really see if David is dead or not because he's such a, uh, a womanizer. Where does this come from? Well, listen to it, the it, sermon. Is it even worth, you know? I no, mean, it's, it's not cra- worth. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. Right. So, listen, this guy uh, who we just listened to, he preaches for, I don't know, 40-some-odd minutes, and I, even though I would love for you to listen to the sermon because I love to see... Uh, those veins in your forehead start bulging because you're so bothered by it. But I finally found somebody who speaks with some substance. Good. His name is Andrew Farley. He is a guy who's got some sort of call-in radio show uh, that he does every day. But he also pastors a church, and uh, the name of his church is Church Without Religion. Interesting. What do you think about that? What, what a dumb name for a church. 
Well, I uh, have listened to a number of his sermons, and I knew that you would like him right off the bat. He speaks uh, quickly, he's educated, and he uses a lot of biblical content. Uh, But I thought we would pick his one. He did a, a series of sermons on the truth of dot, dot, dot. And this one is his sermon entitled, The Truth of Holy Baptism. Does he call it holy baptism? Oh, well, you know, that's me. Uh, No, of course not. It is just the truth about baptism. The truth about baptism. Okay. All right. Well, today I've uh, titled this message, The Truth About Baptism. Um, As the kids are going off to Children's Church here, this is the time. Go for it. Um, And uh, I've titled this message, The Truth About Baptism, because believe it or not, maybe you have a background in, in baptism disputes, maybe you have a background in baptism debates, or maybe not so much. But either way, you need to recognize that there are circles of people, there's a Christian community at large that is divided into pieces over issues such as baptism. And uh, being here in West Texas, you know as well as I do that there are many different denominations and movements all over the country and all over the world, in fact, that have different opinions about water baptism and the role that it plays. And so today, we're going to look at all of the main passages about baptism, both water baptism and spiritual baptism, and sort of get a bird's eye view of what the apostles, Peter, James, John, and Paul, what they seem to be saying to us about baptism uh, today for believers. Huh. They, they seem to be saying? That seems very strange to me. Luther talks about this uh, in his debate with Erasmus. Uh, Erasmus engages in this sort of uh, thing. That it's known in, the, in, the, in that era as the ars dubitandi, the, the art of falling out on both sides of a question. Uh, and this is the debate over the free will. What Erasmus does and what he wants to do is he wants to marshal all the arguments against free will and all the arguments for free will and kind of say, you know, throw up his hands and say, hmm, I'm not sure. This is what it seems to be saying, so I guess I really can't be sure about this. It seems that you get to decide which one it is. That's exactly what Erasmus does. So he says, look, we can't figure this out, so let's just go with the opinion of the Holy, of the Ro- Holy Roman Catholic Church, okay? So Luther responds to this, and he did, it's like these words thunder off the pages of uh, the bondage of the will. And I can imagine him writing them and putting them in all caps and underlining them and putting a box around them. <laughs> Uh, these are the words, uh, Spiritus Sanctus Skepticus Non Est, the Holy Spirit is no skeptic. And that's precisely what this kind of thing, uh, seem language, right? E- either God proclaims clearly or he doesn't. And either the writers that God himself has chosen and inspired proclaim clearly or they don't. And we as Christians assert that they most certainly do. Right, but if we turn around and we then become the interpreters, we then become the ones who become the, I don't know, the arbiters of truth? Right. We've talked about this a million times, haven't we? Right. About About Scripture interpreting Scripture. And uh, so, no, we aren't the arbiters of truth. We're just, we just happen to be the receptors of the truth that the Scriptures themselves proclaim. So let me ask you this question, because this was very helpful for me when I was— 
trying to break free from my sacramentarian ways. And just so everybody knows, sacramentarian is anti-sacramental. Correct. Right. That's a that's a a, a nickname that probably Luther or somebody came up with it. Right. Yeah. The whole idea is is that you know I was brought up, reared, educated in a sacramentarian system. The, it was uh, the Bible and anything Christian was devoid of the sacraments. And so my point is, is I would look at the same scriptures that this guy is going to look at, and I would interpret them exactly the way that he's going to lay them out. And that's because, wouldn't you say that there's a, a, a beginning premise there? There's an a priori assumption about what the scriptures must be saying, and, and that it drives how you read the passage? Is that what you would Oh, no say? doubt. Yeah. No mm-hmm. doubt. But also, too, it's as if the sacramentarian perspective is devoid of tradition. Like, we're not going to say to ourselves, as a sacramentarian, well, you know, listen, we're 2,000 years removed from Christ. We're 18, uh, 1900 years removed from the apostles. What what did the Didache say? What did what did uh, the church fathers, the the post Nicene fathers, the anti Nicene fathers? What what did they say about this issue? It's like that whole chunk of history of theological thought. All of that is. You know, it's like somebody has uh, selected it all right. and just deleted it. Right. So, so you fast forward from from the text of Scripture to today, or, or yeah, and, to a uh, you know a Barclays commentary or a Warren Wearsby or which some is which Mar- is interesting, right? And that because they're that's their that's the intellectual tradition. Those contemporary commentaries become the intellectual tradition. Correct. And it's nothing It's nothing like an intellectual tradition. It's just the spoutings of a contemporary human being. Right. So when this guy, I mean, as, you know, I've listened to this sermon, as I said numerous times, the he's not going to refer back to any sort of theological tradition. He's just kind of, as he's already done, he's just going to say, look, we've got all of this craziness let's just look at what the scriptures teach and then almost in a sense it becomes his conclusion really is the conclusion that everybody else in the world is supposed to have because he's giving the truth about baptism sure and and you would expect that he would make such assertions wouldn't you i mean that's uh i i would hope that a preacher would feel confident to do that even (laughs) i mean sadly even if he's wrong um but you know, I mean, I think there are two things going on here. Number one is this sort of lack of consulting of the tradition. And, you know, one way you could talk about Lutherans doing theology is it would be to say, okay, St. Augustine says this passage means X. Does it really mean X? I'm certainly not trying to suggest that, that the church fathers could be wrong. And they're wrong all the time, right? So that's the, that's the, that's the Lutheran approach to the church fathers. But there's an, another thing going on here, too. Luther would say, and the dogmatic tradition of the evangelical Lutheran church would say, that these teachings that we hold fast, that also happen to be in line with what the ancient church taught, are, in fact, the teachings of the Holy Scriptures. And all you need is the Scriptures to tell you that, if you don't come to them with an a priori conclusion. 
So uh, first of all, we want to hit a major point that is certainly contentious. And this is that it doesn't matter who baptizes you or where. Now, uh, you just witnessed a father baptizing his own son. Is that okay? Well, certainly it's okay. And in fact, you see that Paul was pretty upset in the early church when these Greek people, these Corinthian believers, were arguing over who baptized whom. They were arguing over whether Paul did it or whether Apollos did it or who baptized you, and it almost became a status symbol. Who baptized you determined your worth and your value, and maybe you were at the upper echelon or upper level of Christianity because someone took 30 seconds to dunk you in a pool of water, and that gave you more status. I've never heard that it's controversial about who baptizes you. I mean, we would say that uh, if a heretic does, like if you get an LDS uh, baptism, that's not a valid baptism. But no one would ever... Do you know of anyone saying it it matters? No. No. I mean, uh, under normal circumstances, I think it's appropriate for the pastor to be doing it because he is the called uh, servant of the mysteries of God. But uh, in an emergency, in case of an emergency, any Christian may baptize, and it's valid. So we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 13. It says, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? In other words, they were making a big deal out of who was doing the baptizing. And if you had Paul baptize you, well then, whoa, that really meant something. Because, you know, Paul was the man. Paul was the dude, right? So if you were baptized by the dude, then you were at dude level. And that's pretty serious. So the big Lebowski enters Christian proclamation here, I guess, huh? Uh, you know, it's unfortunate. He should have just read a verse further. He's he's making some he's making an issue, raising an issue that isn't an issue. The very next verse says, "I give thanks to God that I baptized among you uh, nobody except for Crispus and Gaius." He will get to that. Oh, he will. Yeah. Okay. So it's just Crispus and Gaius. It's not like people. His his bigger argument is not who baptized you. Uh, but did I, did Paul die for you? Did Apollos die for you? No, we're all in Christ. What type of argument is that called? Is it a red herring? He's chasing after a false lead. So Paul was irate at this. He was frustrated by it. Why? Because they had lost focus on Jesus Christ, and they were now falling at the feet of Paul and using the name of Paul instead of the name of Jesus. Something so important as baptism, something so important as, as what we witness today, the public celebration of being in Christ, and some were talking about being in Paul, so to speak. They were bragging about the name of Paul instead of the name of Jesus. Okay, he's going to show his cards a little bit more later on, but I just got a peek there because he said that baptism is the celebration of those in Christ. He's going to make the argument that people are 
in Christ based upon their belief and their, their faith, acceptance. Their prior faith. Mm-hmm. Their, yeah, okay. And then the baptism is just a celebration it's of It's like that. a water fight for Jesus. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay, that's that's an interesting thing. And I've I've been wondering if, you know, as he's going after this partisan stuff in Corinth, if he's not going to say, okay, look, if you have a Lutheran perspective on this, you're following Luther. And if you have a Calvinist perspective on this, you're following Calvin. And that we can't do that. We just have to follow Jesus. Well, you'll hear it very, very clear in just a few moments. He is going to bifurcate in Christ with water baptism. He does not see them as being one in the same thing. That'll be interesting. And so Paul really hits them pretty hard here. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Now hang on just a minute. Why would Paul be thanking the God of the universe that he didn't baptize very many people? Because if he had baptized more people, guess what? There'd be more debates, more disputes, more confusion, more factions, more denominations, so to speak. There would be more issues over this whole concern of who baptized whom. And so Paul is literally shoving this back in their face and saying, I wash my hands of you people concerning this. I thank God that I did not baptize many of you. Now, Crispus and Gaius are probably running around bragging, see? I mean, Crispus and Gaius are feeling like real champs at this point because they got the exclusive baptism by Paul. And probably these dudes, just a guess, probably these guys are some of the people that are stirring up this problem, right? Because after all, how did this problem occur? Are people really bragging about Apollos? Probably no. Probably it's Paul that gets all the bragging rights, right? Because he's written these letters and he's traveling and he's perhaps more well-known than Apollos. And so it's probably those who were baptized by Paul that were making a big deal about being baptized by Paul. And so that means that Crispus and Gaius, I'm not trying to throw blame on some guys, I don't know. All right, forgive me, Crispus, forgive me. But maybe, just maybe, these were two of the guys that were stirring up the trouble. Yeah, maybe, but he's stretching. He's moving away from the text, just like the Yahoo that we heard at the very beginning in getting the young maiden for David. We, we've gone away from the text. The text says the woman was there to keep David warm. But this guy comes along and says, no, we're here to test to see if he's going to jump on top of her or not. Uh, Stretch Armstrong, right? Yeah. And, and um, you know, it's interesting. Paul goes on immediately following this little discourse about Gaius and Crispus uh, to def- actually defend his ministry. Um, and it seems to be, uh, based upon what we know about Apollos, Apollos was a smart, smart guy and we read about this in acts right when paul finds him in ephesus he's this man who's learned deeply learned in the scriptures and so paul uh, makes his defense of himself saying look i'm not any of that i didn't come with come to you with wisdom uh, at all Uh, i just came to you with the simple foolishness of the message of the cross so 
I don't know. I, you know, who knows? Who knows if Gaius and Crispus were pro-Pauline or not? It doesn't really matter. But but really, what he's doing is he's uh, spinning out a yarn here that that we can't tell from the scriptures. Now, he says, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, just recognize that if baptism saved people, think about what Paul just explained. I thank my God. I thank the Lord Jesus Christ that I didn't baptize many people. Now, if baptism saved you, why in the world would the Apostle Paul be glad, be celebrating that he didn't baptize many people? What a terrible argument. I'm trying to think of, a, of an analogy where, where you might say, um, you know, this is a good thing that needs to be done. I'm all behind this being done, but I'm glad I didn't do it uh, because it, it's being misunderstood in a certain way. What struck me when I heard it was the fact that just because Paul is saying to the Corinthian Christians, I thank God that I didn't do a lot of baptizing, in that quite possibly there were other pastors there to be able to baptize. It doesn't mean that Paul, everywhere he went, he never baptized anybody. I mean, this is, if baptism is the delivery mechanism for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, you have to start there. You don't start with Paul saying, I thank God I didn't do. Right, right. I, I, I didn't do this. Good. So so you, we go to the scriptures that actually speak to the point and not to scriptures that don't speak to the point at all. I, right. Good. I, I think that's that's that hits its spot on the head. And this does not speak to the question of whether baptism does anything. Uh, this is a really horrible argument. Hopefully we'll think of a, the way to talk about that later on. Do you see that? And so baptism doesn't save us. Whether you are dunked in a pool of water for 10 seconds or not doesn't determine your spiritual destiny or your spiritual value in the eyes of God. It's not about being in water. It's about being in Christ. There it is. It's spot on. We've talked about this before my one of my seminary profs who talk about who talked about building inverted triangles over a point in a text and that's exactly what we have uh, Paul is glad not to have performed the baptism not because it doesn't save but because people have been misusing um, the person by whom they were baptized to foster a, a sort of partisan spirit. And couldn't you make an argument that this is the definition of sin, is that we abuse the gifts? And so, you know, whether it's alcohol, money, sexuality, our sin is wrapped up in abusing the good gifts that God gives, even creation itself. So here's a good gift that God gives, i.e. baptism. Right. And he's highlighting the abuse of the gift. That's... Uh, Absolutely right. So, and the rule is usum abusus non tollet. Right, abuse does not take away the proper use of a thing. So let's just talk about this in Christ. Uh, this this uh, sort of, um, as you said earlier, this bifurcation between baptism on the one hand and being in Christ on the other hand. Uh, Romans chapter six, and and I think this is um, an important. You got to pay attention to the preposition here. Or do you not know, this is Romans 6, 3, or do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized 
uh, we, we were baptized in, I guess it's many as, of us, as we're baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. Now, it doesn't say you were in Christ already and then you got baptized. You are baptized into him. In other words, how are you in Christ? It is through your baptism. St. Paul in Galatians chapter 3 talks about the fact that when you are baptized, you have put on Christ. What does that mean? You are made to be in Christ. So again, to your point that you made earlier, which was fantastic, let the scriptures that speak to the topic speak to the topic and don't make ones that don't speak to the topic speak to the topic you want them to speak to. But even without looking at the prepositions in the Greek, I mean, he just, without a moment's hesitation, he just said baptism does not save you when Mark 16, 16 says it very clearly that it does. Good, Mark sixteen sixteen and uh, what First Peter is that is that the passage or is it Second Peter? Baptism also now saves you. Uh, again, the problem is the problem you identified early on. It's allowing passages that don't speak to the topic to speak to the topic, because you've got an a priori and you're shoehorning baptism into your it's a it's a round peg and you're putting it in a square hole. Big difference. And so when we go down into the water, we are celebrating the fact that we have gone down into Christ and then we've been raised up to newness of life. 1 Corinthians 1 16, now, you know, Paul's sort of confessing, well, well, now wait a minute. Now, let's see. Now I did, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. So now you know how it is when you're just sort of speaking out and you're, you know, uh, in the moment you're recollecting and you're um, just sort of uh, saying, well, let's, let's brainstorm here. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There was Stephanus. So now he feels like he's gotten to the end of his list of who he's baptized and the total, the grand total is not very high. So what we're going to see next is that water baptism does not save a person Spiritual baptism does. This is a very firm conviction, isn't it? Water baptism doesn't save, but spirit baptism does. Now, number one, where do we find this split between spirit baptism and water baptism? Where in the world uh, do we have spirit baptism taught in the scriptures? He's making this up. Well, doesn't the creed tell us very clearly that there's one baptism? Good. All right. One baptism. So this goes to your earlier point that you were making, right? Doing theology in a vacuum, uh, apart from the teaching of the historical church. Yeah. I mean, the creed is there to give us the bedrock doctrine of the Christian faith. Oh, wait, wait. Of the Christian religion. Of Oh, the Christian religion. Ooh, not, yes, good. And, uh, yeah, and the pattern of sound words. And whatever offends against the creed, you just got, any Christian should be saying, whoa, hold her newt. Right. It goes back, I've said it before, about my seminary president who said, if it's, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. And so this is, it's not like guys we've heard before who are, uh, like the Michael Heiser, who seem to be uh, writing a dissertation and they're trying to come up with something brand new. I mean, clearly this has been around what he's postulating here, this Farley guy is postulating here. Uh, it's been around for a while, but it's still wrong. And the way to come up to the conclusions, as we're pointing out, are wrong as well. 
Right. So we find evidence of it in the Reformation. Uh, it's tamped down largely, uh, and then it pops up again. I mean, when, when I don't know the history of ba- of the Baptist Church. How old is that? When did it start? Is Wait. it 19th century? Oh, earlier. Oh, okay. I mean, it comes out of the Anabaptist tradition. Oh, it does. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. All right. So it it was it it traces to the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. Now, let me just make sure that that point is clear, because maybe you're not real certain of what spiritual baptism is. Remember that the word baptism just means to be placed into. Uh, If I baptize something, I can take a napkin and I can baptize it in a cup of water. I can place it in a cup of water. In fact, uh, in the past when I've talked about baptism, I've talked about my friend uh, Stephen Bailey and how he taught his daughter the meaning of baptism by taking uh, a, a soda bottle and filling the sink with water and then taking that soda bottle and immersing it, placing that soda bottle into the sink full of water. And then what happens? Well, the bottle is in the water, but also the water is in the bottle. Do you see that? When you put a bottle immersed down into a tub of water, what happens? It fills up, right? The bubbles start coming to the surface and the water begins to fill that bottle. And then Stephen, he reached down inside of that tub of water and he took a a bottle cap and he screwed it on and he said, Lacey, see, this is what it means for us to be in Christ and for Christ to be in us and for us to be sealed with the Holy Spirit forever. Oh, okay. Well, again, I'm glad he's making arguments, and he, he actually is, and I, I really, really appreciate this. This actually makes, he's using, misusing logic, but he's using logic. So number one, baptize, baptizdo in Greek, doesn't mean to place something in another thing at all, or for anything the thing that you're baptizing with to go inside the thing that is getting baptized. It just, that's not it. And for this, you've just got to look at Mark chapter 7, where Jesus talks about all of the baptizing that goes on among the Jews. I mean, they baptize, um, you know, their hands and they baptize their couch, their couches, right? Do they take their couch? Their couch. Kleenex. Yes. How, how large is your Kleenex? It's big enough for you to sleep on. It's not a krabaton, which is like a little cot. Think of a, you know, a good-sized futon. You take that and dump it in the pool. Is that how they baptize their couch? That's not how they baptize their couch. It's the application of specifically water to the outside of the thing. Then he goes on in his entire analogy limps because he talks about all these things that are, that are the application of water. That's exactly what baptism is. But he doesn't want us to think that. And then finally, he's going to build his case about being filled with the Holy Spirit off of a stupid Coke bottle analogy. I mean, where is this in the scripture? This is just really bad thinking. So now that was a great lesson in the meaning of baptism right there at the kitchen sink. And so water baptism doesn't save us, but what water baptism represents saves us. We are placed in Christ. Christ is placed in us, and we are sealed in him forever. And that 
is the heart surgery. That is the spiritual swap. That is the spiritual event that saves a person. So if you're not clear on that, it's certainly not about the time you've spent in a church building. It's not about the time you've spent in the Bible. It's not about you giving up drinking and smoking and hanging out with better people. It's about being in Christ. If you're not yet in Christ, you get in Christ by believing the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and rose again to give you new life. And then by putting your faith in Him and receiving Him, saying, put me in Christ, baptize me in Jesus, place me in you, Heavenly Father. And as we call upon the name of the Lord, that's how we're spiritually saved. What do you do then with Romans 6? We just read it. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? The being in Christ part, it, it, there's not a separate um, category. Right, right. It Being baptized into Christ is being in Christ. Now, if he wants to stress the role of faith here, I have no problems with this. Baptism is useless apart from faith. You can't just go to the corner of 6th and Kansas Avenue and stick a fire hose to the fire hydrant and squirt it on people and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and think that, that that's going to do anything. Faith matters. But baptism gives the faith that it demands that you have. This is the enthusiastic mistake, isn't it? that the Spirit operates apart from the Word and apart from the sacraments. Correct. And you've already seen several times in what he's presented thus far, you hear these new terms which are not, you know, you hear represents, which clearly is not in these baptismal passages. Uh, Where is that text where it talks about how uh, Paul is talking? We just came across it not too long ago in our lectionary the epistle that talks about uh, the two mountains, and he's talking about Hagar and Sarah. Galatians yeah, and he 4. Sa- yeah, and he says, uh, now this is allegory. Right. He makes it very clear. Now, now this represents this, and this represents this. But when it comes to baptism, we don't see allegory. We don't see represents. We don't, we don't see any of that talk. That is a great point point when Paul wants us to know he's being allegorical he tells us correct good the other thing that's introduced here is this as you pointed out earlier what is spiritual baptism I mean this is something new I mean if you were completely unaware of the scriptures and were to hear this then okay this makes sense but if anybody has spent any time at all listening to Sunday school lessons, listening to sermons, uh, reading their Bible, this would be a novelty. And it, and it, again, depends upon the splitting of the operation of the Spirit from word and sacrament. You know, Titus chapter 3 is helpful on this, actually. Uh, in Titus chapter 3, which is a, a key passage on baptism, and, and hopefully we'll have a much more time to talk this through with people. Um, I don't know if he's going to bring it up ultimately, but he says that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, uh, but that uh, he poured out the Holy Spirit on us. Well, this pouring language is clearly baptismal. Very physical. It's, a, it's not a, a, a rain shower of the Holy Spirit. It is a pastor pouring water 
on someone's head. Right, and Paul does not say, now these things are being allegorized. Now, I, ne- I noted that water baptism doesn't save, but that spiritual baptism does. Look at this as we finish this passage in 1 Corinthians 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize. Just pause and soak that in. <laughs> I'm going to read that again. I'm going to read it again for all the folks out there who have placed water baptism front and center. For Christ did not send me to baptize. There's his argument right there. And it's a poor argument. It's very clear early on uh, in the church, and we can see it developing even within the first generation uh, in the letters of Clement and and others, uh, that the work of the church, the, the, the one work of the ministry, was often divided up. As recently as uh, the Reformation era, any Lutheran church would have like six, seven pastors. There was one who was the chief preacher, a bunch who heard confession constantly, those who took the communion out to, the, to those who were uh, homebound. And so the, those guys, the, the confession hearers, the confession fathers, the father confessors, often didn't ever get in the pulpit. I take this as being very similar to what most folks are familiar with in the early church in Acts, where the apostles realized, listen, we cannot spend our time preaching and teaching and praying as well as taking care of these tables for these Hellenistic widows. So we've got to, you know, we've got to ordain, so to speak, uh, some other help. Well, it seems to me that Paul is saying that help was already in place. God didn't send me to do that. But it doesn't mean that it's minimized or mitigated. Right, that that the task of baptizing is not an important task. Yeah, and Paul is a gifted, um, I mean, as as much as he downplays it in in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, he is a really gifted preacher. There's no question about it. That's, that's the gift that the Lord gave him and that the Lord wants him to exploit. Interestingly, too, whenever Paul travels, he's never alone. Every single one of these letters is not just Paul all by himself off in some corner. He's always with an entourage, with fellow pastors. And so uh, you can easily see, uh, and he goes on to talk about this, right? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paul was the preacher, Apollos was the baptizer, and it was God who made it all happen. So you're saying then, when you hear that, uh, when Paul watered, you're making the tie to baptism and saying this was his role that he did. Apollos, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Now what saves? If Paul was sent not to dunk people in water, but to preach the gospel, then I ask you what saves. If the apostle, the one and only apostle to the Gentiles that is responsible for a large portion of what we call the New Testament today, if God did not send him on a mission to put people in water, then does water save? Earlier on when he said, if Paul wasn't sent to baptize, then what saves? And I wanted to answer with the question, yes. Both things save. It's both the proclamation of the word and the administration of baptism that save. And you pointed it out, Mark 16, 16, right? He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. That's what it says. 
the first Peter passage, um, baptism also now saves us. You, you got to reckon with the clear scriptures on this one. It's ridiculous. Certainly not. Water baptism is irrelevant to being saved spiritually. So what does save? Well, verse 17 says very clearly that Paul was sent to do something, to preach the gospel. So what saves? Hearing the gospel, believing in your heart, the gospel message, this is what saves. Then why do what River did? Uh, because it's fun, because it's awesome, because it's a celebration. That's it? That's, That's it. it. That's it. It's a celebration and it's fun and it's awesome. That is taking the Lord's name in vain. I'm sorry. He is teaching falsehood in the name of God. Total falsehood. So it's And just diminishing this wonderful gift that the Lord has given in baptism. So it's not celebration? No. Is it? Is I it? mean, you can be celebratory when you have baptism. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, but the baptism itself isn't the celebration. It's what happens around it. Think about the hymn that we sing after we're baptized, right? God's own child, I gladly say it. I am baptized into Christ. That's the celebration. Uh, and it's a, it's a reflection on, on the objective work of God in the baptism. Yeah, and so what do you do if it's just a celebration and if it's just fun and if it's just awesome? What do you do with a text like uh, where Paul says, that it's a circumcision made without hands. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. You're right. This is God's work. This is the hard part for the uh, sacramentarian to like really absorb. They always want to be in the driver's seat. They accept, they believe, they commit, they, 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 they. Uh, the problem is, is that baptism is a work that God does. Just like, actually, the giving of the faith is a work that God does, because I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. And if the whole point is that baptism is fun, awesome, and celebratory, why wouldn't you, you know, fill up your the ceiling with, you know, put on above the panels a bunch of balloons, and when somebody gives their heart to the Lord Jesus, uh, release the balloons. That's fun and awesome and celebratory. Well, let's not you know, stop there. I mean, let's do confetti cannons. Sure, confetti cannons, the whole nine yards. This is just a false criterion. If it's in the scriptures, it is something. The question is, what, it, what is it? And, and he's missing the boat on it. Some of you uh, chuckled when I said it was fun. You thought, oh, he's making light of baptism. No, taking the Lord's Supper is fun, and it's a celebration. Being baptized is fun, and it's a celebration because the Spirit has given us a joy about all that Jesus Christ has done for us. You see that? Man, you know, uh, I get really upset with my daughter when she rolls her eyes. But for some reason, when you roll your eyes, Pastor Bruss, it, is, uh, it, it just brings me so much joy. <laughs> There's nothing but eye rolls here. And, and this whole fun thing, you know, let's talk about the fun thing, the fun aspect. Uh, when Paul starts talking about baptism, again, we're going to go to Romans chapter 6. He is talking about nothing short of death and it is the death of the old Adam. Baptism is not fun. Uh, and the reason baptism isn't fun is because God is at work murdering 
the father of lies and your flesh. You're being put to death and created as a new creature in Christ. So Romans 6, chapter 6 is interesting. Um, knowing this, that the old man, our old man, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to naught, in order that we no longer uh, be enslaved to sin. What sinner likes to be put to death? And yet that's exactly what baptism does. This is the greatest message on the planet, and to publicly celebrate that is fun. Our birthday party's fun. Is an anniversary supposed to be fun? Yeah, we get married and we have an anniversary. We're born and we have a birthday party. These things are supposed to be fun, right? Well, that's the celebratory part. The anniversary, the birthday, baptism, you just, it's all in that, in that we're just throwing it in the bag of celebrations. Right. And uh, this is a very helpful analogy for him. It's a false analogy, but it's a very helpful analogy. The real thing happened a year ago or 25 years ago, and this is just a, a celebration of it. But, you know, isn't it funny how the sacramentarians, I mean, the other analogy, other, another sermon that I was going to play on the same subject, the guy from start to finish, he talks about his marriage, the wedding day. He talks, he doesn't use the sad analogy of the wedding ring, baptism is like your wedding ring, but he, I, I just kept waiting for him to drop it because everything was about his relationship with his wife and how that's a relationship with Jesus, and it comes to these wedding moments and these uh, anniversaries, and he kept, he kept referring to it nonstop. The irony of that, again, in Romans 6, is that Paul is uh, making his argument on a point of Jewish law that when the spouse dies, the other one is free. <laughs> so he's talking about getting joined to his spouse, and Paul is actually talking about baptism as the death of the old spouse, of the old sinful nature to which we have died and from which we are now free. And so the point is, is that when we celebrate our being in Christ and our being married to Jesus and our being born again, that's supposed to be fun. And it was. Today it was. What if it's not? I don't know. I don't know what you do. What it, I mean, now we have to, uh, now we have to like put on our fun meter to see if it registers when either A, we're being baptized, or B, seeing somebody else baptized. Right, and what if Debbie Downer is the one who's getting baptized, right? <laughs> She's not going to have fun. No, no. <laughs> you know, I have to say this, uh, whether or not it's useful. You know, the only time I really have fun in my life is when I'm on a four-wheeler, and got a shotgun. That, you know, my wife, I've even heard you say it from time to time. You know, my wife will say, uh, you know, I've got to go to church and, uh, you know, there's a meet, there's a council meeting tonight. And she'll, you know, as I'm walking out the door, she's like, have fun. I'm like, I, I'm going to church for a council meeting. This is not fun. It's not dreary, but I wouldn't put it in the category of fun unless we were having our meeting on four wheelers with shotguns. Right, right. <laughs> And actually, this is an interesting criterion, isn't it? Is church fun? And 
I don't know any Lutheran who would say church is fun. I don't think they would say it's therefore unenjoyable or pure drudgery, uh, but it's not rip-roaring fun. It's not Schlitterbahn. Correct. Or, or going, going in the forest on a four-wheeler with a shotgun. But this goes back to yet another problem with American evangelicalism. The issue is I can run, run the gamut of the number of pastors who's gone, who've gone to Walt Disney World, and they have had fun. And they say, concluding afterwards, this is the way church should be. And so they have gone to great lengths and spent untold bajillions of dollars to make church fun. You'll hear it from pastors all the time. Are we having fun this morning? Church is to be a place where we have fun. And guess what? Everybody just uh, applauds at that. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about something called core values. How many of you guys know what a core value is? It's what you believe. Like, what do you believe? What is the number one thing that you believe? Well, we have some of those on the back wall. But one of the things that we believe here at Beyond Church, and I want to talk about it tonight, is this, is that church should be fun. So it makes the principle of the church entertainment rather than the thing that it is, which is uh, the locus where God's word is preached and his sacraments are administered. Which is because... And the reason that is, is because that's what you need. You need what? The word rightly taught oh. and the sacraments rightly administered. I see what you're saying. God right. provides these things for you because it's what you need. Right. And entertainment isn't. Correct. Correct. So what is it that saves? It is the preaching of the gospel that saves. First Peter drives this same point home. It's very interesting because he uses the word saves. Look at this. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. How would you get dirt off of this flesh? What would you use? Water. So what's his point? Corresponding to that, baptism saves you, but not water baptism. Oh, no! He, he is... He... He's he's misunderstanding this passage here. What what Peter is saying is that baptism is not just like Jewish baptisms of their couches and all this sort of stuff, uh, and it's not just you know scrubbing the outside of the body. But what water baptism does is it gives you a cleansed conscience. Why? Because in it, Christ applies his death and resurrection to you and makes them over to you. He puts to death the old man in his own crucifixion. He buries it uh, in a grave and leaves it there. And what arises out of that is the new creature in Christ who is righteous and pure before God forever. Which is certainly something to celebrate, but it's theologically driven instead of this, oh, I'm just celebrating the fact that I believed way back when. The problem, it seems, that what Farley is doing, he's taking Peter, who says, baptism saves, and then he's turning right around and he's saying, actually, it doesn't. I think what he's saying is that that must be spirit baptism. Mm. Don't you think? And well, he's certainly he said, trying to uh, tamp down, so to speak, what he just said. Correct. So here's the problem: is that is that there's a spiritualizing tendency here, isn't there? Uh, have you touched your conscience lately? 
Like physically touched your conscience? Uh, uh, no. No, and I haven't physically touched my conscience either. Have you touched your faith lately? No. No. Um, have you, uh, oh, actually, have you seen Jesus lately? Oh, of course not. No, okay. So all of this is very spiritual, and I think what the assumption is is that anything that is physical can't have any sort of spiritual effect. Well, let's hear him spin this out a little more. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through what? What are you baptized into? You are baptized into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A spiritual baptism saves you when you are placed in Christ's death, you are placed in Christ's burial, and you are placed in Christ's resurrection. That's what saves So I think right there, he's speaking about what you just got through saying, that this takes place spiritually. This takes place in the invisible realm, and it certainly cannot have any sort of correlation to anything physical. Is that right? It is. And and don't you think that there's probably a deeper uh, Christological problem here? Uh, you go to these churches, and they may not even have a cross. And if they do have one, it certainly doesn't have a corpus on it. Uh, because there's this sort of um, shame, or uh, um, uh, it's, it's as if a corpus is toxic. Does this make sense to you? Oh, absolutely it does. And, and at, the, at the end of the day, I think this has, this has to do with a, a basic denial of the enfleshment of, of the second person of the Trinity uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, you've said this so many times before regarding we don't like to think of our Jesus as getting his fingers dirty. Right. His, his hands dirty, his fingernails dirty. Right. Jesus is he's like the he's like the spick and span man up in heaven, right? Or the what's is that Mr. Clean. Mr. Clean up in heaven, right? He's winking with you, winking at it and the glory of God the Father is glinting off his shaved head and and uh, there's nothing but clean there. Uh, but the Jesus who redeemed us pooped his diapers, smelled bad. He probably, you know, lost total bowel and bladder control on the cross. He agonized, writhed in pain. But even and, that, he, he clearly said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Go on. And so this idea that he does roll up his sleeves he does uh when he washed the washed the disciples feet i mean he reaches down between his legs and pulls up his robe and puts it into his uh you know his belt and oh come on that was a spiritual washing that was all that was all allegory he didn't do he didn't touch peter's dirty feet he did even peter was somewhat repulsed by this right that he would that he actually did this to this level exactly right so, so why is it, okay, if we've, we see clearly that Jesus did this, we believe what you're saying regarding the aspects of just being a man, having to uh, urinate and defecate and bad breath and B.O., but yet when it comes to what Jesus does now, somehow or another, like, some, that stopped somewhere. Right. Jesus stopped being who Jesus actually is. Right. The God-man. Let's just assume that this is the Jesus that they worship, okay? 
the one that we've just been describing, mm-hmm, who, who, mm-hmm. who who is a servant, who, mm-hmm. you know, uh, is human in every way. Um, did he stop being human in every way when he ascended into heaven? No. No, I mean, no, he didn't. But but I'm wondering if in their perspective, he stopped being human in every way when he ascended into heaven. I mean, is he up there with are his wounds? Can you see his wounds? Of course. Right. My assumption is that this Jesus has gotten placed into the, you know, Holdreich Zwingli's lockbox. Or the Parthenon of gods. Good, right. Yeah, heaven is a white marble temple. And Jesus is sitting on a throne, all scrubbed up, not getting his fingers dirty. And so that's why we look at baptism, and baptism is just a celebration of what this spiritual Mr. Clean did for us. Because Jesus couldn't be involved in it. No. He couldn't be doing surgery without human hands. I mean, it's his hands doing the surgery, not our hands doing the surgery. Which surgery? The circumcision without hands. Oh, the circumcision without hands. Right. Good. And it's and and good. And it's his hand uh, that is uh, raising the knife and putting to death the the old nature. Yeah. And he, is it uh, Ezekiel? You know, the whole uh, "I'll give you a new heart." Right. He's excising the old one and putting a new one in. Right. All right. Now we're going to see this in a different way here in Romans and other places, spiritual baptism, not water baptism, spiritual baptism involves death and burial. Or do you not know? Now, that signals something to me. In Romans 6, uh, this passage, let me read it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, what this signals to me is, is that there can be thousands, there can be tens of thousands of Christians There can be millions or billions of Christians over time that are in Christ that don't yet know what that means. Or do you not know? Now remember, remember the question they're asking here in Romans 6. It's always important to rewind and get perspective here. Um, Hey, uh, Paul, God's grace is so incredibly awesome that how about this for an idea? How about we set a world record for sinning, and then God's grace is really shown off? How about that, Paul? How about we do evil so that God can do good in return and really shine, right? How about we take advantage of all this grace and sin, 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 so that God can show grace upon grace upon grace, 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 and then, wow, God will really get the glory. So do you see their weird, messed up logic? Now, in today's world, the message of God's grace, we're accused of this sort of weird logic. We're accused of saying, oh yeah, behavior doesn't matter. Oh yeah, sin is no big deal. Oh yeah, God doesn't care about what you do. Oh yeah, because you're forgiven, just go out and don't even worry about decision making. Well, let me tell you, that is absolutely not what we proclaim. That is not the gospel that we celebrate. We have found out pretty quick, haven't you found out, that sin stinks and sin stings and sin doesn't pay off. And in fact, when I realize that I've got a baptism spiritually into Christ and Christ is in me and I'm in him and he's in me and he's changed me and given me a new heart and a new spirit and his spirit, then actually 
The idea of a world record for sinning sounds like a world record for misery. Now, I think we're letting him run on here because we don't really have a problem with what he's saying here. No, it's all good. Except for he's, he's saying that this is spiritual baptism. Right. He keeps throwing that in here to minimize holy baptism, physical baptism. But see, he has to. He's got the inverted triangle going on here, so he has to keep building on that. So he carries what he, from the text in 1 Corinthians, he carries that over now, and he's going to force it on to the Romans text. That is so good. Isn't that amazing that he's taken, that he's used this totally irrelevant passage to kind of drown out the evidence and the noise from these other passages that are clear as a bell. And, and look, he hasn't accounted for this either, has he? That Paul, in one place, uses the same verb, and there he's claiming that it means water baptism. Here he uses the same exact verb, and here he's claiming it is spiritual baptism, spiritual baptism without warrant whatsoever. I don't want it. I don't want to be anywhere near it. No thank you. I've learned better, and I'm still learning better. Are you not being tutored by the Spirit of Christ in you that sin stinks, that it really doesn't work for you, that your next-door neighbor can lay awake nights and dream of new ways to sin, and yet you're a spiritual weirdo? You can't do that and have it jive with the core of your being? Or do you not know? And that's what verse 3 is saying here. Do you know what it means to be placed in Christ and to have Christ placed in you, to be fused to Him? You know, we don't know what it means to be fused to Him. We don't know what it means to be united with Christ when we, when we talk about getting closer to God. I hear Christians all the time. I spent my whole life, my young adult life, my teenage life, I spent my life saying, I want to get closer to God. I hear people say this, I'm working on getting closer to God. Pastor, help me to get closer to God. And you're, we're missing it. We're missing what this verse has to say to us when we utter such things. I don't want to belabor the point, but I can totally identify what, with what he is saying here. I mean, I, I too, my childhood, my, my youth, my college uh, years... You know, being told, get closer to God, get closer to God, get closer to God. And thus you get on this treadmill where you do. I mean, I remember a book, Tom Tenney, God Catchers. It's the whole idea of chasing after God. But here's the problem. He was told this, and I can maybe sense, maybe I'm, uh, you know, I'm reading too much into this. But I can sense, I mean, I know the despair that comes from years and years and years and years of of doing this. The problem is, word and sacrament is, in fact, what God has given to get closer to him. To get closer to him. Right. The answer is staring him in the face here, isn't it? That's it. And what a a sad irony that, that his God... The God who redeemed him by his blood is as close to him as his baptism, his water baptism into the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if that happened to him, he can proclaim and say, I am God's child. I couldn't be any closer to God than I already am. 
and and he's just searching and scratching for something else. Well, then what he's doing is he is shaming or or uh, uh, scoffing at those people who believe what you just said. You know, because he's telling the truth about baptism, and his church is church without religion. Oh, I see. He's he. The truth is so far as he understands it. Correct. Right. Yeah. But it's still mm-hmm. a dead end street. Right. This is all in the head, isn't it? Isn't isn't that interesting? It's all in the head or all in the heart. Uh, there's nothing you can grab onto here, and the Lord has given us stuff. To grab onto. And the beautiful thing is, we've talked before as well, every time we make the sign of the cross, we are remembering what took place in our baptism. Which connects us directly to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is what makes us united with Christ. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And see, the great thing is, you don't have to worry about, how do I get united with Christ? You don't have to worry. Am You don't have to, you know, doubt does not have to, doubt does not creep in. And are you united with Christ? The answer is yes. yes. I'm baptized. I take the very body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ into my mouth. I say my prayers. I know that God hears them, and I hear his word preached into my ears. Right, and it, so if I doubt that, I doubt what is what God himself presents to my very senses. The other thing that he's missing here, I think, is that it is the case that, that baptism probably took place with submersion early on even in the in catholic europe uh, babies were dunked all the way in the water uh, that it's a relatively new thing that uh, it's only sprinkling and that's a, a different issue we don't need to trouble ourselves with right now well but, if we but, wanted to trouble ourselves with it we would say that the issue is not the water the issue is not how the water is applied right because it's god's word attached to the water depending on whatever amount of water that might be correct correct but, you know, one of the things that we've sadly lost in the Evangelical Lutheran Church by not dunking babies in the water is the, is the sense of Romans chapter 6. That picture of being buried. Right. So Paul is relying on the experience of water baptism, not spiritual baptism, of water baptism to make his point that you have been buried with Christ and pulled up out of the grave as a new creature because all of his listeners would have understood exactly what he was talking about because they've seen it so many times not only in their own life but also in the lives of their friends and loved ones in the congregation and they've had to blow the water out of their own nose you don't get closer than being in christ you don't get closer than christ being in you you don't get closer than being united with jesus you don't get closer than being one spirit with him. Now, it's true that we're learning and we're growing. Aren't you learning? I'm learning. Are you learning? Are you growing? Is there a renewing of the mind? Are you ditching old attitudes and adopting new attitudes? Absolutely, right? We're in process, but we're not in the process of inching closer to our Heavenly Father. Do you see that? It's not a geographic getting closer. There might be an intimacy in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There might be an understanding that is coming to fullness there as we get to know how amazing he is. Yeah. I mean, when I'm a baby Christian, I don't really know how good God is. All I know is that he saved me 
And from there, we'll see what happens. <laughs> and then there's day two and day three and day four. And this is a journey and it's an adventure and it's there. And we shouldn't deny that. We should embrace it. But it's not a journey by ourselves trekking up a mountain to get to God. It is a journey with Jesus Christ united to us, one spirit with us, us in him and him in us. That changes the journey. See, if the journey is not about getting closer to God, if the journey began because I'm united with Christ, well, then that changes everything. He is actually pretty good here. Do you think? Well, yes. I, I think what he is saying, his words are, are correct, and I, I think he's right, but we both know, as well as our listeners who've listened thus far, he's talking about a spiritual baptism. Right. <clears throat> so, so what he's doing is he's saying that, that this whole thing has n- no objective marker for it, and that's, that's unfortunate. But he's right. Uh, about the fact that when you're in Christ, you're in Christ, and that's as close as you're going to get. It's like the Cadillac salesman who dr- and talks great about the Cadillac, but he drives a Toyota. Good. I, that's, per- that's a perfect analogy. I'm not journeying alone. I'm not journeying to achieve. I'm journeying, get this, I'm journeying to learn what is already true of me. Do you see that? Now, that's some weird business. Most of us, apart from, you know, learning human biology, for example, most of us don't journey to learn what is already true of us. But we are journeying to learn spiritual biology. We are journeying to learn our spiritual nature. We are journeying to learn the very ingredients of our spiritual heart. Do you see that? So the heart's not changing, but the understanding is. Spiritual, spiritual, spiritual. I don't know. I kind of think he's like, I don't know, like off-road right now. He's just... Uh, yeah, not really uh, um, on topic. Is that what you're saying? Right. He's yeah. totally lost the, the argumentation, and he, uh, he just... I, I don't know. I don't know. Or do you not know? Do you not know how good it is? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into water. No through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, just 20 minutes ago or so, we saw River, and River went down into the water, and then he came back up. What does this represent? We're in Christ, we're crucified in Christ, and then as this verse says, we are buried in Christ. And then we are raised in Christ, just as River came up out of that water. Good thing he did, right? That's part of the process. And that coming up out of the water represents this resurrection to newness of life. Now, before River had done this, was River in Christ? Absolutely. Before River had done this, was River saved? Absolutely. Why? Because he'd heard the gospel and believed it. Then what in the heck were we doing this morning? Celebrating with River. You could use the same exact argument uh, against going to church. You just heard today that Jesus died for your sins. Did you believe that before? Yes. So then what in the world was going on here? There was nothing happening. nothing, Nothing was going on. Again, they're not following what the scriptures themselves say. They've got this, this template figured out 
about how the Christian life is supposed to work, and baptism doesn't fit into it. Correct. And you could say the same thing in regard to the Lord's Supper. I mean, was I remembering Christ's death before I took the bread and took the juice? Yeah, I I was remembering that. Then why do I need... The ritual. Yeah. Exactly. Now, you say, are we sure? Well, you could go through the book of Acts. You could visit chapter 10, for example. And Peter, in Acts 10, he discovers this group of Gentiles... And he can't believe it. It blows his mind that these dirty Greek people like you and me, these dirty Gentiles, these non-Israelites had received the Spirit. They were already saved. They had heard the gospel and believed it. They had received the Spirit just as we have, he says. And then his next breath, in his next breath, he says, what prevents them from being baptized now? You see that? Which came first? The Spirit came first. The celebration came second. This is a one-trick pony. It is. And I'm sure part of the argumentation must rest upon the fact that there are these instances where people clearly were brought to faith through the proclamation of the apostles and then baptized. This is the way it works for adult converts. But for uh, an infant... The baptism actually bestows the faith that the baptism requires. I, I I don't know that much rests upon this sort of for instance that he's talking about. And where does it say it's just a celebration in Acts 10? It doesn't. And you think about what the same Peter said in Acts chapter 20 or in Acts chapter 2, right? As it started verse 38, uh, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins. And then talks about this promise being for them and for their children and for people far off, for their children. When Jesus says in the Great Commission to baptize or to make disciples of all nations, does it include babies? Of course. No, it's only voting citizens, 18 years old and older. Oh, Question solved. (laughs) Those who are trying to say, oh, it's all one thing. You've got to have the water to have the Spirit. You know, John 3, Jesus said, you've got to be born of water, born of the Spirit. And they're trying to say that water plays a role in spiritual birth. In John 3, Jesus' real intent is pretty obvious. You know how we know what Jesus meant? Because he tells us in the next verse. You're born of water, and that's mom. Nine months, you're in a sack of water. Flesh gives birth to flesh, he says. And then later, you're born again spiritually when you come to believe. Spirit gives birth to spirit. Do you see that? Mom gave birth to you, and then the Spirit of God gave birth to you, and both are needed to enter the kingdom of heaven. Number one, you need to exist. (laughs) Pretty logical. You need to exist. Number two... You need to be born of God's Spirit. Now, there's a truth in there that's worth 10,000 sermons. What in the world does it mean that I'm born of the Spirit? Uh, We've heard this ambiotic fluid before as being what Jesus is referring to. We say the water broke, right? The Greeks didn't use this. The Jews didn't use this terminology. Uh, There's a different word for that fluid. And um, so to... To make this assertion is, is very strange. This guy is using Jesus' bifurcation to emphasize his own bifurcation between the 
physical baptism and the spiritual baptism. And so the physical birth would be the fluid in the mother's womb. The spiritual birth would be uh, being born again from above or born from above. Without realizing that what Jesus is talking about in verse um, verse 6, right, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit, is speaking about the, use this term, but the spiritual reality of all human beings. Uh, if you are born in the natural way, uh, if, if you are apart from Christ, you are flesh you're um, a condemned sinner and until you are born through water and the spirit that is through baptism because the spirit is delivering the goods via the water right that that's a that's a really good point um they're not they're not worried about the delivery mechanism of the word are they i think they would acknowledge this why are they so shy of the delivery mechanism of the water? I don't know, and this is something that the evangelical will do quite often, and that is uh, when the pastor gets up to preach, many, many times it's preceded by a prayer that the Spirit would, um, what would you say, be connected to the pastor's words in some way, you know, speak through me now, Lord, or... Uh, you know, edify your people as uh, as I proclaim to them your truth. There's, you know, something along these lines. So when it comes to the Spirit being interconnected with the proclaimed Word... No problem. No problem! But that same Spirit then connected to water, bread, wine, pastor absolving... They, they just cannot go there with anything tangible. The spiritualizing tendency that we've seen, isn't it? I mean, we got some pretty ugly impressions of what the Spirit produces. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've got a wicked heart. I'm born of the Spirit. Oh, yeah, I've got a sinful nature. I'm sinful at the core, rotten. I'm born of the Spirit. What? Hello? What did the Spirit do when He gave birth to you? So as we realize what born of the Spirit means, it has implications for our heart. It has implications for our nature. It has implications for who we believe we are. Now, born of water, born of mom, born of flesh, born of spirit, they both have to happen for us to have a new experience in Christ. That's just logical. Colossians 2 continues this idea, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through what? Through water? No, through faith. Through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, you said, God, you raised Jesus from the dead. God raised me from the dead. God, you crucified Jesus. Jesus, crucify me with you. God, you buried Jesus. God, bury me with Jesus. God, you raised him to newness of life. Put me in there too. And when you say put me in there too, you're saying baptize me in the Spirit. Do you see that? Put me in Christ. I'm sick and tired of being in Adam. Put me in Christ. Now I know, I know there's those 28 words or whatever that we're supposed to memorize for a salvation prayer. That's not in the Bible. You could be saying to the God of the universe, 
put me in, coach, and really mean it from the heart, and that could be a salvation prayer. Put me in Christ. Put me in Jesus. I'm tired of being an Adam. Put me in Christ. You are my coach. You are my counselor. You are my guide into all truth. You are my king. You are my Lord. You are my savior. Put me in you so that I'm safe. More freewheeling here, but uh, what, do you, what would you like to add? I would like to talk about this business where he uh, is making a big deal about Colossians 2 verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised through faith in the working of God who raised his son from the dead. He's trying to say, look, baptism, water baptism doesn't do anything. It's faith that does something. But no one who believes that water baptism does something believes simultaneously that faith does nothing. In fact, they would assert all the more that faith is operative and working as it attaches itself to God's promises in baptism. This is what he's missing. All right, well, speaking of being in, baptism is in the Spirit. Now, is this a small ordeal? No, apparently this is a big one because people say, oh, it's great that you're in the Spirit, but now you need the baptism of the Spirit. You see what they did there? They introduced a new preposition. Oh, and yet when this guy introduces a new preposition or a new word... You know, somehow or another, that's okay. He can dog the people that introduce something new, but yet when he does it, it's fine. Right. And we've seen this. He's taking baptism and appending the adjective spiritual before it. That's an import from outside into the text. And listen, if I'm not mistaken, what he's getting ready to say here, I I think we would both agree with him that... Uh, you know, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, he's going to talk about uh, evidence by speaking in tongues for just a moment. Sure. And we would agree with that. That yet again, that one can tell that they have been baptized in the Spirit uh, if they do speak in tongues. Right. And we would disagree with that position. Totally. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh huh. And with that new preposition, you know what prepositions are, right? A board about, above, across, after, again. I had to memorize them in sixth grade. I still know them, and they've served me for no reason. (laughs) Nevertheless, here's what people are doing in the great switcheroo. It's great that you're in the Spirit. Now you need to have the baptism of the Spirit. Have you heard this? It's like a second baptism, a second experience... And mainly, they look back in Corinthians, take one spiritual gift, lift it out, and say, there it is, there's the evidence you've had the second one. You know what that evidence is, right? Tongues. Not love, not prophecy, not teaching, but it happens to be tongues. And if you have had this gift experience, then certainly you have enjoyed the second baptism. Not in, because you were already in. You just need to be baptized of the Spirit. Now, what does that do to a person? Well, now, I I mean, I thought I was fine. I mean, I thought I was complete, like Paul said I was. I thought I was lacking nothing, like God told me. I thought that I had everything that I needed for life and godliness. I thought I was complete in Him, 
and didn't need to go shopping for more. And now I've heard there's a second baptism and I need more. This is ironic because, again, here he is putting down the people who believe in a what he's calling a second baptism by evidence of speaking in tongues, which, again, we would agree with him. But what has he done thus far? So the person who is baptized as a baby. Water baptism. Water baptism. They come and they hear, oh, there's a spiritual baptism and a physical baptism. And the same person would say the same thing. I thought I was fine. I thought I was, you know, I thought I was a Christian. I thought I was God's own child. And I could gladly say it. But obviously, there's two. So... He, he's dogging how people can confuse somebody, but yet the bulk of this sermon has been about confusing people. Is this not just bizarro world? It is bizarre. And here, here, you're, you're spot on. This is a, that's the perfect critique of this. And so people are deceived by this and they're tricked by this and the enemy uses this to rob people of their security in Jesus Christ. Exactly. Yes. He is dead on right with this conclusion that it robs people, but so has everything he's been saying thus far in negating water baptism or simply calling it a celebration or awesome or fun. That's robbing people too. It is, uh, particularly because Scripture says that, that the Lord saves us through that baptism, number one. Number two, what he's doing is he's replacing that water, that objective water baptism with the subjective experience of you saying, yep, I'm on team Jesus now. And yeah, and you're not being facetious. I mean, put me in coach or whatever you were talking about earlier. Right. And I can never look at my fervency of faith as the indicator for whether I'm saved or not. If you're like me, uh, my faith is like driving through the Flint Hills. I'm at a crest one day, and I'm in the valley the next day. That's you know the strength of that faith. Point is not the strength of my faith, or the fervency of my faith, or the the depth of my conviction. The point is what God in Christ has objectively done for me. He has died for me on the cross, and He has reached into my sinful little life and made me His child through something that I can't undo. I cannot undo the fact that Pastor Musser poured over my head when I was a baby water three times and said, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That can't be undone by me. It means I am God's child. And I think, you know, you and I analyze what the pastor is saying. That's all we have. We don't have his motives. We don't have anything going on in his brain or his heart. All we've got is his words that he makes available via the World Wide Web, and we analyze those and critique them in light of the Scripture, and we want to applaud where he says something that we, it's not that we think or feel is right, it's that, that we can look at what he's saying and we can match it up with Scripture and say, yes, amen, this is true. But then those places where he's off the reservation, we can say, he's off the reservation. So there's one part of us, I think, for both of us, where we think about the pastor, But then I think there's another part of us that's that pastoral side of us. And we think about the people who are hearing this. And, well, let's just use his words. They're being deceived. 
by what he's been communicating. And left without certainty. Now, look at this baptism in John 1. Uh, John the Baptist says, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes what? In the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that every verse we've seen says that we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, not of, but in. Now, it's true that the Holy Spirit does it. We're baptized in the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. But the point is, it's one event, not two. Again, I, I just blow it away. He is arguing correctly against the charismaniacs, but yet he's so solid in his... In his own falsehood. Right. His own sacramentarian melu that... He can't see what he's doing. Right, he can't, he can't see that that same logic can be applied to what he's saying. The bottom line of this is you're equipped. You have everything. If you've got Jesus Christ, you've got the Spirit. He's called the Spirit of Christ. We start dividing the Trinity into three different parts. Say, well, I've got him, but I don't have him. I've got him, but I don't have him. And we get into that business, and it's utter confusion. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. The Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. They are three in one, and the entire Trinity is pleased to have us. So there is one baptism, not two. The Bible states this in Ephesians 4. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Right! That's what we've been trying to say. My goodness, see, again, he's using this logic, and he's using the Bible correctly to argue against something, obviously, that he doesn't agree with, and neither, and neither do we. But yet he doesn't use that same logic. Everything, I mean, this sermon could have been over in like five minutes. Absolutely. So just so everybody understands what he's, what he's doing here, he is saying... Uh, you already have a spiritual baptism. You don't need a baptism of the Spirit or Correct. in the Spirit. Okay, that's that's what he's saying because there's only one baptism. <laughs> but on the other side of his mouth, he's saying you already have a spiritual baptism if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it'll be a good thing for you to have this water baptism. But yeah. there's only one baptism. But there's only one. Oh. What you... tangled webs we weave when first we practice to deceive. Now, in context here, you know what this also means. There's folks running around saying there's one gospel for the Jews. There's one gospel for the Gentiles. You know what Ephesians 4 is saying? No, no, no. One faith, one covenant, one Lord, one baptism. Neither Jew nor Gentile were all one in Christ. So there's not two messages, there's not two gospels, there's not two different covenants, there's not two different destinies for Jews and Gentiles. We're all one in Jesus Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether what? Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. All right, so finishing up here, what does baptism mean then? I mean, we've said it doesn't save. We've said there aren't two baptisms. There's only one. But what does baptism mean? Well, baptism means you're identifying. I mean, River went down into that water, and he is identifying with Christ, publicly saying, I identify. 
Uh, you know, it's the Team Jesus thing again, putting on the jersey. Absolutely. I, I'm speechless. Verklempt again? Ich bin ganz verklempt, yeah. They identified with Moses, 1 Corinthians 10, and speaking of the Old Testament, and all were baptized into who? They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So they were following Moses. They were identified with Moses. They were traveling with Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Today, please don't identify with Moses. Don't try to be in Moses. You don't want to be baptized in Moses. There are people, Christians, some of them, some of them just confused. And they're trying to be baptized in Moses along with being baptized in Jesus. I've said this many times, flirting with Moses is cheating on Jesus. There are not two baptisms. You don't get baptized in Moses and also get baptized in Jesus. Israel was baptized into Moses when they identified him with him and followed him. We are baptized in Jesus Christ when we identify with his death, burial, and resurrection and follow him through that. So which Christians want to be baptized and into and identify with Moses? I've never heard of any such thing. You know, there is a movement afoot that's been a, been going on, or at least it's been on my radar for the last, I don't know, 10 years. I'm sure there, you know, there was a period of time a little bit before that, but it's called the Hebrew Roots Movement. Have, are you familiar with this? Yeah, I am. I, I think I knew some people who, who were toying with this okay. at some point. And it's, you know, it's seductive. You know, it's, uh, again, making you sound like you don't have what God wants you to have. And if you would live like the Hebrews lived uh, and do the things that he called Israel to do, then you really would, you know, I mean, land flowing with milk and honey. So, um, but there's all kinds of problems with that. That's what I think he's alluding to. Gotcha. So spiritual baptism means you are in Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have done what? Clothed yourselves with Christ. Now think about that. I've been getting a, a lot of questions on the internet. You know what I'm about to say. I've been getting a lot of questions on the internet about these sport coats, you know. Has, has Farley gone legalistic? I mean, he's wearing a sport coat. He must be. Must be a Pharisee. Uh, but you see... Putting on something, number one, that fits, number two, that looks good, we don't just do it in the physical, we do it in the spiritual. See, I got measured for this. I went over there, yeah, I went over there to the men's warehouse. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, and they measured me, and I mean, I hadn't worn a sport coat in 40 years, but they measured me and got it just right until, you know, it's, it's a good fit. And what, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that when we are placed in Christ, Jesus Christ envelopes us in Him, and we are clothed with Him. And get this, Jesus fits. Jesus fits with who you are. Jesus is a perfect fit. But if you're dirty, Jesus doesn't fit. But if you're wicked, Jesus doesn't fit. But if you've got two spiritual natures, good me, bad me, Jesus only fits with half of you. What kind of stuff, what kind of garbage have we ingested? 
The truth is, you're a saint, you're a holy one, you're born of the Spirit, and Jesus fits. I told you off air that uh, that he has got some really interesting views when it comes to saint and sinner, uh, law, gospel. Yeah. He he he's got some really. I, I can't wait to play some of these things for you. So here, um, this is a denial of Romans seven, right? The good that I would, that do I not do, and the evil that I would not, that is what I do do. And that's Paul talking the same one whom he's citing here from galatians um uh, on putting on christ and what a sad thing um peter says repent and be baptized every one of you why for the forgiveness of your sins what that means is that you have to be a sinner when you show up for your baptism yes yes because that's what it's for it's to forgive sins what I'm hearing him say is that you got to be purged and cleansed, presumably by your spiritual baptism, which makes you perfect, I guess, prior to getting water baptized, which is when you put on the jersey, I guess. I don't, is that, right? I mean, is he, he, the thing he's talking about now is not, is water baptism, not spiritual baptism. Am I correct about this? That the clothing in Christ, or is that... What it? Uh, uh, he's totally confused us. He's probably confused himself. <laughs> I have no idea. You don't? Okay. No, no. All right. So as we wake up every day, we put on Christ. But this says we've been clothed with Christ. So have you ever tried to put something on that's already on? Not me. I mean, I can't even imagine that. I'm imagining Chris Farley with fat man in a little coat. <laughs> But that's a different Farley, no relation, actually distant, distant relation. Goes back to uh, Adam, Adam and Eve. But uh, you ever tried to put something on that's already on? Man, that's fat man in a little coat, right? But that's kind of a, a picture of what it's like to be in Christ. We're putting on Christ, but we've already been clothed with Christ. We're putting on Christ every day, having already been clothed with Christ. He's making no sense now. All right, well, what did we see today? We saw, number one, a fantastic celebration of a young man publicly proclaiming, identifying with Jesus Christ. Number two, we saw that what he did doesn't save us. That Christ didn't send Paul to baptize, but to preach the gospel because hearing and believing is what saves. We saw that people received the Spirit and then got baptized later. It wasn't the baptism that caused them to receive the Spirit. We saw that baptism is about identifying. Baptism is about union. Baptism is about fusion. So, you know, how many of y'all have been baptized? Right. Well, see, and you thought of water. See that? So about 50, 60% of you raised your hands, maybe 70, I don't know, I'm, not, I'm never good at math. But some of you didn't raise your hand because you thought of water. Our first inclination is a tub of water. Now I want you to go back and reevaluate, have I been baptized? How many of you have been baptized. Let's see a show of hands. How many of you are in Christ Jesus? 
How many of you have been played? You can put your hands down. I know it's kind of fun. Like, like maybe every sentence we should, yeah? I mean, just affirm. Yeah, two hands. Yeah. How many of you are in Jesus? How many of you are in the Spirit? How many of you have been placed there by God? How many of you are saying, wow, and thank you for that? Now, if you want to be baptized in water and publicly celebrate that, great. See one of us in leadership. Do what River did. Why? Because it's fun. Because it's a celebration. Because it's a picture for all of us of what happened to you internally. It'll be a picture you will carry with you for the rest of your days. But it doesn't save. Jesus saves. The message of the gospel saves. We're saved when we hear it, when we believe it, and when we just say to God, Wow, and thank you. Let's pray together. Well, Pastor Kearns, uh, how is this uh, serving of sacramentarian spaghetti for you today? I had great hopes, but uh, yeah, I'll tell you the story. It's kind of like um, I went to go see some of our shut-ins uh, last week. Somehow or another, the, the, uh, the topic came up on uh, picking black walnuts, and uh I made no bones about it. I do not like black walnuts. I mean, these people, it was the Falks. They, they like them some black walnuts. To me, it ta- they, they look like pecans. You know, they look like they would be delicious until you grab like a big handful of them and just throw them in your mouth, and it tastes like nuts and dirt. Right, they're very bitter. It's awful. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you see something about, this is the truth about baptism, and you think, hey, man, let me grab that. And then you throw it in your mouth and start chomping around, and it's like, this was a mistake. Indeed. And and we saw, too, how confused he got um, as, as he started to, or he continued on this thing, right? Uh, the whole last business about having put on Christ and, how the jacket doesn't fit or does fit. And uh, I mean, he, he lost, the wheels came off uh, actually at that point in time. And it's bec- I, I really think it's because he doesn't have, he's got all this biblical data. He's misunderstood it. And now he's got this analogy he thinks is going to work, but it doesn't map over the misunderstanding. It, does, it can't account for the evidence that's there in the scriptures. Well, then on top of that, as I said at the outset, he's got this, I assume, nationwide call-in show. So anytime, now think about this. Think about one of our Lutheran kids that uh, hears him and think, I'll ask this guy. He seems to, he seems to have some, some knowledge, some, some chops about the Bible. So some of our kids uh, call him up and ask him about baptism. Everything that you and their parents have and previous pastors have instilled in this child regarding what the Bible says about baptism. And just say, hey, listen, uh, you know, I'm Lutheran, and uh, this is what our church believes about baptism. Here's this guy who just cuts all that to shreds. Cut, cuts what the scriptures teach to Ab- shreds. Absolutely. Yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, your earlier comment about thinking about this pastorally i mean it, it is uh, heartbreaking actually to think about all of the people uh sitting in the audience presume it's an audience not a congregation uh listening to him chuckling away having a great old time being entertained by this 
uh, and just drinking in this spiritual poison that that robs them of all comfort uh, that they have that God wants to give them in in his word and sacrament. Well, Andrew Farley is the gift that keeps on giving because uh, he's got a lot of sermons that I would love to play for you. He actually talks about some of the things that are near and dear to our heart, law, gospel, uh, the two natures of the sin and the sinner and the saint, and, uh, and even more. So we will be hearing from him again. I'm looking forward to it. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.